This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Accession of James the Second by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter eight. Part three. Magdalen College at Oxford, founded in the fifteenth century by William of Wainfleet, Bishop of Winchester and Lord High Chancellor, was one of the most remarkable of our academical institutions. A graceful tower, on the summit of which a Latin hymn was annually chanted by choristers at the dawn of May Day, caught far off the eye of the traveller who came from London. As he approached, he found that this tower rose from an embattled pile low and irregular yet singularly venerable which embowered in verdure overhung the sluggish waters of the charwell he passed through a gateway overhung by a noble oriel and found himself in a spacious cloister adorned with emblems of virtues and vices rudely carved in grey stone by the masons of the fifteenth century the table of the society was plentifully spread in a stately refectory hung with paintings and rich with fantastic carving. The service of the church was performed morning and evening in a chapel which had suffered much violence from the reformers and much from the Puritans, but which was, under every disadvantage, a building of eminent beauty, and which has, in our own time, been restored with rare taste and skill. The spacious gardens along the riverside were remarkable for the size of the trees, among which towered conspicuous one of the vegetable wonders of the island, a gigantic oak, older by a century, men said, than the oldest college in the university. The statutes of the society ordained that the kings of England and princes of Wales should be lodged in Magdalen. Edward the Fourth had inhabited the building while it was still unfinished. Richard the Third had held his court there, had heard disputations in the hall, had feasted there royally, and had mended the cheer of his hosts by a present of fat bucks from his forests. Two heirs apparent of the crown, who had been prematurely snatched away, Arthur, the elder brother of Henry the Eighth, and Henry, the elder brother of Charles the First, had been members of the college. Another prince of the blood the last and best of the Roman Catholic Archbishops of Canterbury, the gentle Reginald Poole, had studied there. In the time of the Civil War, Magdalen had been true to the cause of the Crown. There Rupert had fixed his quarters, and before some of his most daring enterprises his trumpets had been heard sounding to horse through those quiet cloisters. Most of the fellows were divines, and could aid the king only by their prayers and their pecuniary contributions. But one member of the body, a doctor of civil law, raised a troop of undergraduates, and fell fighting bravely at their head against the soldiers of Essex. When hostilities had terminated, and the roundheads were masters of England, six-sevenths of the members of the foundation refused to make any submission to usurped authority. They were consequently ejected from their dwellings and deprived of their revenues. After the restoration the survivors returned to their pleasant abode. They had now been succeeded by a new generation, which inherited their opinions and their spirit. 
During the Western Rebellion, such Magdalene men as were not disqualified by their age or profession for the use of arms, had eagerly volunteered to fight for the crown. It would be difficult to name any corporation in the kingdom which had higher claims to the gratitude of the House of Stuart. The society consisted of a president, of forty fellows, of thirty scholars called deanies, and of a train of chaplains, clerks, and choristers. At the time of the general visitation in the reign of Henry the Eighth, the revenues were far greater than those of any similar institution in the realm, greater by nearly one half than those of the magnificent foundation of Henry the Sixth at Cambridge, and considerably more than double than those which William of Wickham had settled on his college at Oxford. In the days of James the Second, the riches of Magdalene were immense, and were exaggerated by report. The college was popularly said to be wealthier than the wealthiest abbeys of the continent. When the leases fell in, so ran the vulgar rumour, the rents would be raised to the prodigious sum of forty thousand pounds a year. The fellows were, by their statutes which their founder had drawn up, empowered to select their own president from among persons who were, or had been, fellows either of their society or of New College. This power had generally been exercised with freedom, but in some instances royal letters had been received, recommending to the choice of the corporation qualified persons who were in favour at court, and on such occasions it had been the practice to show respect to the wishes of the sovereign. In March 1687 the President of the College died. One of the fellows, Dr. Thomas Smith, popularly nicknamed Rabbi Smith, a distinguished traveller, book-collector, antiquary, and orientalist, who had been chaplain to the embassy at Constantinople, and had been employed to collate the Alexandrian manuscript, aspired to the vacant post. He conceived that he had some claims on the favour of the government, as a man of learning and as a zealous Tory. His loyalty was, in truth, as fervent and as steadfast as was to be found in the whole Church of England. He had long been intimately acquainted with Parker, Bishop of Oxford, and hoped to obtain by the interest of that prelate a royal letter to the college. Parker promised to do his best, but soon reported that he had found difficulties. "'The King,' he said, "'will recommend no person who is not a friend to His Majesty's religion. What can you do to pleasure him as to that matter?' Smith answered that if he became president he would exert himself to promote learning, true Christianity, and loyalty. "'That will not do,' said the bishop. "'If so,' said Smith manfully, "'let who will be president. I can promise nothing more.'" The election had been fixed for the 13th of April, and the fellows were summoned to attend. It was rumoured that a royal letter would come down recommending one Anthony Farmer to the vacant place. This man's life had been a series of shameful acts. He had been a member of the University of Cambridge, and had escaped expulsion only by a timely retreat. He had then joined the dissenters. Then he had gone to Oxford, had entered himself at Magdalen, and had soon become notorious there for every kind of vice. He generally reeled into his college at night speechless with liquor. He was celebrated for having headed a disgraceful riot at Abingdon. He had been a constant frequenter of noted haunts of libertines. At length he had turned pander, 
had exceeded even the ordinary vileness of his vile calling, and had received money from dissolute young gentlemen commoners, for services such as it is not good that history should record. This wretch, however, had pretended to turn papist. His apostasy atoned for all his vices, and, though still a youth, he was selected to rule a grave and religious society, in which the scandal given by his depravity was still fresh. As a Roman Catholic he was disqualified for academical office by the general law of the land. Never having been a fellow of Magdalen College or of New College, he was disqualified for the vacant presidency by a special ordinance of William of Wainfleet. William of Wainfleet had also enjoined those who partook of his bounty to have a particular regard to moral character in choosing their head, and, even if he had left no such injunction, a body chiefly composed of divines could not with decency entrust such a man as Farmer with the government of a place of education. The fellows respectfully represented to the king the difficulty in which they should be placed, if, as was rumoured, Farmer would be recommended to them, and begged that, if it were his majesty's pleasure to interfere in the election, some person for whom they could legally and conscientiously vote might be proposed. Of this dutiful request no notice was taken. The royal letter arrived. It was brought down by one of the fellows who had lately turned papist. Robert Charnock, a man of parts and spirit, but of a violent and restless temper, which impelled him a few years later to an atrocious crime and to a terrible fate. On the 13th of April the Society met in the chapel. Some hope was still entertained that the King might be moved by the remonstrance which had been addressed to him. The Assembly therefore adjourned till the 15th, which was the last day on which, by the constitution of the College, the election could take place. The 15th of April came. Again the fellows repaired to their chapel. No answer had arrived from Whitehall. Two or three of the seniors, among whom was Smith, were inclined to postpone the election once more rather than take a step which might give offence to the King. But the language of the statutes was clear. Those statutes the members of the Foundation had sworn to observe. The general opinion was that there ought to be no further delay. A hot debate followed. The electors were too much excited to take their seats, and the whole choir was in a tumult. Those who were for proceeding appealed to their oaths and to the rules laid down by the founder whose bread they had eaten. The king, they truly said, had no right to force on them even a qualified candidate. Some expressions unpleasing to Tory ears were dropped in the course of the dispute and Smith was provoked into exclaiming that the spirit of Ferguson had possessed his brethren. It was at length resolved by a great majority that it was necessary to proceed immediately to the election. Charnock left the chapel. The other fellows, having first received the sacrament, proceeded to give their voices. The choice fell on John Huff a man of eminent virtue and prudence, who, having borne persecution with fortitude and prosperity with meekness, having risen to high honours and having modestly declined honours higher still, died in extreme old age, yet in full vigour of mind, more than fifty-six years after this eventful day. The society hastened to acquaint the King with the circumstances which had made it necessary to elect a President without further delay, 
and requested that the Duke of Ormond, as patron of the whole university, and the Bishop of Winchester, as visitor of Magdalen College, to undertake the office of intercessors. But the King was far too angry and too dull to listen to explanations. Early in June the Fellows were cited to appear before the High Commission at Whitehall. Five of them, deputed by the rest, obeyed the summons. Jeffreys treated them after his usual fashion. When one of them, a grave doctor named Fairfax, hinted some doubt as to the validity of the commission, the Chancellor began to roar like a wild beast. "'Who is this man? What commission has he to be impudent here? Seize him! Put him into a dark room! What does he do without a keeper? He is under my care as a lunatic. I wonder that nobody has applied to me for the custody of him.' When this storm had spent its force, and the depositions concerning the moral character of the King's nominee had been read, none of the commissioners had the front to pronounce that such a man could properly be made the head of a great college. Obadiah Walker and the other Oxonian papists who were in attendance to support their proselyte were utterly confounded. The commission pronounced Huff's election void, and suspended Fairfax from his fellowship. But about Farmer no more was said, and, in the month of August, arrived a royal letter recommending Parker, Bishop of Oxford, to the Fellows. Parker was not an avowed Papist. Still there was an objection to him which, even if the Presidency had been vacant, would have been decisive, for he had never been a Fellow of either New College or Magdalen. But the Presidency was not vacant. Huff had been duly elected, and all the members of the college were bound by oath to support him in his office. They, therefore, with many expressions of loyalty and concern, excused themselves from complying with the King's mandate. End of Part 3